Uh, as we look to the theme of eschatology, and you should have your handout there. Uh, anyone else need one? Um, as we look to the theme of eschatology, I was uh, I was struck by how foundational things outside of eschatology are to eschatology. And recently, I picked up a book, Roland McCune. Um, he's a, been a he was a teacher for uh, numerous years at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, I picked up his third volume of Systematic Theology just to uh, have a cross-reference and a reference book uh, as we go through eschatology. And it's interesting that he begins out his um, introduction to the topic of eschatology by noting three background areas uh, that are helpful to understanding eschatology or necessary to understanding eschatology. Um, so he says, in theology, it is the area of teaching. In, in theology, it is the area of teaching concerned with the final outcome of the present order in eschaton, and it can be understood in terms of three factors. So there's three background ideas that need to be uh, uh, understood. The first that he presents is the idea of God being the creator. Uh, God being the one who created all things. And then the second, uh, the created order is upheld by God in a continual work of his preservation, a work of the sovereign God whereby he maintains his universe in all its laws, powers, properties, and processes. And then third, and this I'll uh, read at length because uh, it points to the uh, the. Uh, the largesse of the foundation that sovereignty is for the topic of eschatology. Third, God will consummate the present order in eschaton. He not only preserves the universe, he self-consciously controls it in its entirety and brings it to his preordained and pre-planned goal, a work known in theology as providence. God's infinite attention is always concentrated fully on every detail of his universe. His kingdom of providential power and sovereignty rules over all, Psalm 103.19. Eventually, this present order will be annihilated, 2 Peter 3.10, and a new order will again be created out of nothing. In this new order, the self-contained triune God will rule in unrivaled, absolute, and endless Sovereignty. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be all in all. So in a sense, God's sovereignty is the thing towards which eschatology is pointed. The fact that in the ultimate end of all things, God will be seen to be sovereign and God will rule as sovereign for all eternity. Not just in the millennium, though in the millennium, for a thousand years uh, on earth, but even into all eternity, God's sovereignty is uh, is seen. And so I'd like to take up uh, this morning uh, just a little bit of an understanding. So we, we're not going to do a whole series on uh, God's sovereignty, but a little bit of an understanding of God's sovereignty, especially as it relates to um, as it relates to eschatology, which is what I'll put out, point out as we come uh, to the end. I, I doubt that we'll have enough time to get to where um, uh, next week 
in conversation will discuss especially Job and see how uh, Job ties God's sovereignty with eschatology. Um, But that probably will be next week, uh, given uh, time factors. But as we uh, look to... Uh, as we look to, oh, I forgot to print out my, um, Alethea, could you help me? I have my handwritten notes and then I typed up more extensive notes. Can you go and the, the typed up version that looks like this? You can have this. The typed up version that has more than this, that's, uh, that's really a help to me. Otherwise, I'll be cross-referencing where I don't need to cross-reference because I already... Um, did that and then uh, yeah that's good Uh, so as we think about God's sovereignty I really did a lot of uh, work reading um, uh, Turretin on the subject and so I'll reference him as we go along but the first thing that we uh, might note is that God's sovereignty always to be understood in light of his Power in light of his power. Now, you could define God's sovereignty as his authority, his domain, and power over all things. But uh, to do that would be a little bit to confuse God's power with his sovereignty. But what what uh, Torton does a good job of helping us to remember is that God is sovereign in the way that he is because God is all-powerful. So a king might be sovereign and rightly sovereign over his domain, but he is not sovereign in the same way that God is sovereign because a king, no matter how powerful the king, right? Unless the king is God, uh, no matter how powerful the king, that king's sovereignty is limited by his power. Whereas since God is omnipotent, for the young people, omnipotent means all-powerful. Because God is all-powerful, we understand his dominion and his authority rightly in light of his uh, omnipotence. Um, so God's sovereignty ought always to be understood in light of his power. Power is the blank, and thank you for, uh, that's exactly what I needed. Uh, so God's uh, sovereignty, sovereignty all, ought always to be understood when it's applied to God in light of his power. Uh, second, um, God's sovereignty is absolute and unlimited. And here we could go to dozens of scriptures, but I'll just mention some of the scriptures that uh, that Turretin mentioned. And as well, I'll... I'll uh, mentioned some that came to mind because of the scriptures that Turretin mentions. Um, he first mentions Job 9 and verse 12. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain? Who could say to him, what are you doing? So if we think of sovereignty in terms of God's dominion and authority, if we think of sovereignty as defined God's dominion and authority. How is the the extent of that sovereignty to be judged? And one way we can understand the extent of that sovereignty and see its unlimited nature is that 
though all of us have a judge, some judges on this earth, but an ultimate judge in God, uh, who is God's judge? And the answer, rightly, answer, is no one. No one is God's judge. And so, uh, though wrongly, we might uh, try to bring God into the dock to make reference to Lewis, um, rightly, we can never bring God into the dock. We can never bring God into the, uh, into the courtroom and set ourselves up as judge and put him as the one to be judged. Um, God is uh, absolute and unlimited in his sovereignty. Who could say to him, what are you doing? Daniel points out this uh, sovereignty by uh, arguing from the lesser to the greater. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar was a great king and great in his sovereignty, but there was one who ruled over him, and that was the Lord God. Daniel 4 and verse 25. This is when Nebuchadnezzar is uh, driven away and made to eat grass like, uh, like a beast. You uh, will be driven away from mankind until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Daniel 4 and verse 25. Um, the Most High, that language reminds us that sovereignty is tied to power. But the Most High is ruler over all the domains of the kingdoms of men. No matter how great, whether Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, whether the Pharaoh's kingdoms, whether the kingdom of the emperors of Rome, no matter how great the kingdom, God rules over those kings and kingdoms. God sets up those kings and takes down those kings. And so uh, Daniel 4.25 helps us to see that God's sovereignty is absolute and unlimited. Uh, Matthew 20 and verse 15 is a verse that Turretin looks to. Um, It's an illustration from a parable uh, where the, uh, the owner... Uh, the one who is taking care of his land invites those to come and to work on his land. And you remember how he uh, goes to the, um, to the square, as it were, and calls uh, to those who would be workers. And he invites them to come and work. And he goes at different times during the day. And then at the end of the day, how does he pay them? He pays them all the same. All the same. And there's a lot of consternation. There's a lot of, uh, how can the owner do this? This isn't just, right? Uh, and if, if we think about this in terms of God, there's a lot of, God, you shouldn't be doing that. God, you don't have authority to do that. And, and here's the language of Matthew 20 and verse 15. The, the owner speaking. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Is it not lawful for me to do 
what I wish with what is my own. And this uh, ties God's sovereignty to the fact that he is the creator. We could ask the question, how much does God own? What does God own? And as we tie in this parable and that verse from this parable, understanding that God owns everything and everyone, he can dispose of it as he wishes. Turton then goes to um, the section in Job where Elihu is speaking, and you recall how Elihu is the last of uh, those to come and speak, and God uh, uh, speaks very highly of what Elihu says in the book of Job. Uh, In Job 33 and verse 13, Elihu says, Why do you complain against him, that's talking about God, that he does not give an account of all his doings. Again, to whom is God accountable to be judged? To whom, who would you find who has authority to say to God, rightly, what are you doing? You need to explain yourself. Now, in God's kindness, he sometimes explains himself, but zero percent of the time is God obligated to explain himself. God is never obligated to explain himself. In his grace and mercy and kindness, he has explained himself a lot. Right? I'm holding up my Bible. God has done much to inform us as to who he is and his will and why he does what he does at at times. At other times, he doesn't. And sometimes uh, this brings great consternation to us. He is that same word again. Not only are others consternated, Lord, it isn't fair. Sometimes, and maybe you can remember times in your life, Lord, how is this fair? How is this just? Our heart is the heart as the heart of all men. We sometimes wonder why and don't get an answer. Elihu says, Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? I thought also of uh, Job 36.23, but I'll let you just jot that down as a a cross-reference there. Uh, The last reference that Turretin goes to is Romans 9.20 and 21. Uh, This is uh, probably the, the text that we would expect someone to go to. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The potter can can mold the clay as he desires. 
This is the sovereignty that a potter has in his limited realm of sovereignty over his potter's wheel, right? He can take that lump of clay and he can fashion it into something beautiful and ornate, something that's uh, uh, set around, something that's just to be locked behind glass for pretty. Uh, Or he can uh, take that clay and he can uh, mold it into something that every day will get use and no one will think much of its value at all. Utilitarian. Or, uh, going beyond what what is uh, pointed out here, but uh, using this same imagery of the potter, the potter can take that clay and can mold it and decide it's junk and throw it. The, The potter has sovereignty to do what it wills with the clay. Might we recognize God's sovereignty over all things. Um, This same kind of language and these ideas are used, uh, even the pottery theme, the potter theme, uh, Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah 45, 9, uh, Jeremiah 18, 6, or other cross-references that uh, that particular uh, scripture passage brought to mind for me. But God is absolute, and unlimited in his sovereignty. Uh, God's, God, God doesn't have some place in the world that's not under his dominion. That's not under his authority. You couldn't travel the globe and find a place that, that God doesn't have under his authority. You couldn't travel the universe or all of time and find some place or some time where God doesn't have everything under his uh, control. Um, so in that, in that sense, we rightly say God's sovereignty is absolute and unlimited. That word unlimited being the, the blank there for number two. Thirdly, and I'll... Um, uh, expand especially on these last uh, two, but uh, thirdly... As the sovereign overall, God's sovereignty is depended on by everything and everyone. And this was a uh, this was a point that um, Turton brought out that I hadn't considered in this aspect before. Uh, so we rightly think of common grace and recognize that in God's kindness and in God's power. He does things which benefit believers and unbelievers. But consider that God in his sovereignty is rightly regarded as bringing forth benefits for both believers and unbelievers, for everyone and everything. To use the uh, uh, language there of, of the blanks, everything and everyone. Um, God is, uh, his sovereignty is dependent on by everything and everyone. Um, Christians benefit from God's sovereignty, but so do unbelievers. And this is a part of what is indicated by the language of common grace that we use in uh, studying theology. Uh, God is sovereign over the Son. And God's sovereignty over the S-U-N, the Son, 
um, allows him to give us days that are uh, joyously mild, like yesterday. He, he is sovereign over the sun so that uh, he can at other times give us days that were like, I think, four weeks ago when it was blazing hot. And that, uh, that sovereignty over the sun, that sovereignty has blessings for believers and unbelievers. The fact that God doesn't burn us all up with, uh, in his sovereignty over the sun uh, is a blessing to everyone. Uh, God's sovereignty is depended on by everyone and everything. And, and that's true, uh, as is uh, most of the scripture, right? That's true whether someone recognizes and acknowledges it or not. Uh, some unbeliever, some atheist, some Muslim, some fill in the blank, could say, I don't believe that God is the one who sends the rain. That doesn't any, uh, in any degree lessen the fact that God is the one who sovereignly sends rain. And God is sovereignly the one who withholds rain. You can stand opposed to God like Ahab and Jezebel and maybe like Ahab and Jezebel you'll come to know and realize God is sovereign over the rain. God is sovereign over the drought. Uh, God's sovereignty is dependent on by everything and every one. Acts 17 and verse 24. Um, Turton goes uh, to, to this uh, passage. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Here, um, uh, Paul is reflecting in terms of the circumstance that he's in. But note, God made the world, and as the creator of the world and everything in it, uh, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Now, uh, uh, for the children's sake, I'll ask this question. Is God only Lord of the heaven and the earth? Is God's lordship limited to just heaven and just earth? No. The language of God being the Lord of heaven and earth, the point of it is everything God is the Lord of. There is no place where you can go and not find the Lord being the Lord. And so his blessing, his blessings as the one who created the world and is Lord of all of it comes to those who wrongly make temples, uh, who rightly make temples, who don't make temples, uh, to all of them. Romans 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, all men. God's blessings as sovereign uh, fall upon everyone, whether they recognize it or not. 
two cautions, two cautions. And I think um, uh, this fourth one I'm not uh, taking from uh, Turretin in ways that he phrases it. But uh, fourth uh, caution as we think about uh, God's sovereignty, be, our, our first caution of these last two. Beware, two points. Beware of speaking of God's sovereignty as if he is culpable for sin. Does, does the fact that God is sovereign over everything make God guilty for sin? And the clear teaching of the Bible is no. God is never guilty for sin. God's absolute sovereignty is um, um, above and beyond the law, but not against it. Nor, moreover, can it be called unjust because the adequate rule of justice is not the law alone, but partly the nature of God and partly his will. And that is a quote from Turretin. God can never be rightly blamed for sin. Why? Because what God does in his sovereignty over everything flows out of his nature, who he is, and his will, that which he has decided upon. And that, God's nature and God's will, is the ultimate bar of all justice. You you will never find a justice that is greater than who God is and what he has decided. So beware of speaking of God's sovereignty as if he's culpable for sin. Though the Bible teaches God is sovereign over all things, it doesn't teach that he's blamable for sin. I use that word blamable, especially for the children's sake. Uh, Culpable is is a word that us adults probably know. But blamable is a, a, a easier word for the children to grasp. Um, if you're playing with your uh, with your Legos, and your little brother comes and takes it away and throws it out the door, can you rightly blame your sister for stealing your Legos and throwing them out the door? No, it's your little brother. He's the one to blame, right? God can never be blamed for for anything. And in this particular, God can never be blamed for uh, sin. God is always holy and good, even as he exercises dominion over all. Luke 22 and verse 22 is a scripture uh, that uh, Turretin mentions. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. The, the most wicked thing that was ever done in all of human history, giving the Son of God over to crucifixion, that was predetermined. And uh, that which was done is done, go, he's going as it has been determined in the manner. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke 22 and verse 22. Uh, we are the ones who are responsible for sin, not God even though God is sovereign over all. 
God's absolute sovereignty um, uh, goes uh, uh, over all things, but not in such a way that he can be blamed of sin, blamed for sin. Uh, lastly, beware of speaking of God's sovereignty in ways that limit God's sovereignty. And I love the way that uh, Turretin uh, says this. So a quote for us here. Quote, the extent of the absolute right of God. So Turretin's uh, speaking of God's absolute sovereignty. The extent of the absolute right of God must not be curiously searched into, much less rashly defined. Nor is it in our power or place to put any limits either to the power or the sovereignty of God. If no one could endure a little worm disputing the authority of man and setting bounds to it, how much less is this to be suffered? Our word would be allowed. How much less is this to be suffered in a man who, compared with God, is far more insignificant than a worm? Isn't that great uh, picture? Uh, what what worm can argue with a man, with us? No, you don't have that authority. No, your right is different than you say. And we are less than worms in comparison to God. Um, at this point, uh, Turton then goes to uh, giving some examples from uh, theologians of, of days gone by, theologians who were um, who were uh, previous to him, the scholastics, um, and they uh, they did a lot. There's much worthwhile in studying the scholastics, um, but uh, in this regard, they uh, could we say went to seed, went to seed, and trying to investigate uh, everything and every uh, crook and cranny of how much sovereignty God has and what things God might or might not be sovereign over. So arguing against the free sovereignty of God turns out to be both ignorant and arrogant. Can the potter say, can the pottery say to the potter, I know more than you. I know how it should be. I know what you should be doing. And this uh, brings us immediately, uh, I think, to... But before I get there, uh, Turretin uh, gives another worthwhile caution when he says the scriptures speak of the absolute right as Romans 9 uh, and Job 33 and 42. Um, Scriptures speak of the absolute right and they do not so much mean what God actually does as what he can do in order that thus the mouth of the obstinate and impudent who jeer at the liberty of God may be stopped. Uh, think, think of uh, Romans 9. God, uh, God has given through the pen of Paul a few examples of his absolute sovereignty. But those examples aren't the major point of Romans 9. Rather, the, 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 the bigger point of Romans 9 is to show the foolhardiness of us standing up and saying, God, you shouldn't have done that. One of the most egregious in this point, now I'll turn to uh, tying it uh, obviously to eschatology. Um, God's sovereignty means that 
God is sovereign over what has gone on in the past and over what will go on in the future. So in this, in this way, God's sovereignty is integral to a Christian understanding of eschatology. God is not just sovereign over the past. He is just as much sovereign over the future. All that will go on. Second, I think um, one of the egregious abuses of this kind of uh, who are you God and you don't have the right, one of the egregious abuses of this, uh, which is uh, most clearly and obviously seen, is the, um, the idea that we could stand up and we could say that God would never send someone to hell or cast someone into the lake of fire. Now, now, what is someone doing if they say, because of who I expect and think I know and want God to be, because God is all loving, because I'm not so sinful, God would never send anyone to hell. God would never cast someone into the lake of fire. Whether God's sovereignty is recognized or not, God has authority in exactly that way. Someone else might say, I can't imagine that uh, it be right for us to understand the word of God literally. And so premillennialism has to be wrong. God's sovereignty is such that we don't get to stand and say, you can't do this. You can't say what you have said you will do is what you will do. God is all sovereign. Might we rejoice in God's sovereignty? Because in the end, as we understand God's sovereignty over the future, in the same way that God has been sovereign over the past, this is our hope. God has spoken the truth of what he has done in the past. He has spoken the truth about what he will do in the future. And because God is sovereign, has authority uh, and dominion, over uh, the past and the future, because God is sovereign over all things and everyone, that which God has said he will do in the future, we can have firm assurance. It will be thus. It will be so. Let us uh, look to our Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a just God. We thank you that you have, in your kindness, revealed some of your will to us. But especially thinking on your word and the ways that we have over these past Minutes, I pray that our hearts would rejoice 
to thank you that you are an all-sovereign God. Lord, strengthen us when we don't understand. Give us patience. Give us faithfulness. You are good in your sovereignty. And I pray that we might all bow, accepting your sovereignty with delight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.